Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. I'm Ashani. And I'm Clint. This is episode 28. One does not simply choose to be in a story. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. Alright, welcome back to One Does Not Simply. Um, I am super excited to introduce another special guest today. Uh, Clint, welcome Woo-hoo. to the pod. Hi, super excited happy to be to here. Have you. Yeah, I'm very Clint, happy to be here. Who's never been here before. <laughs> uh, Clint, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into Lord of the Rings. Yeah, uh, well, I've been a Lord of the Rings fan like most of my life. My dad used to read it to me and my brother when we were going to bed when I was really little. Um, He would read The Hobbit and then all the Lord of the Rings. So that's how we got started. Um, But in high school, when I was really like angsty and moody, I would go to the library and read The Silmarillion (laughs) by myself. Um, So uh, I used to read that like every, that was like my summer read and then I would read it in the fall. I fucking loved The Silmarillion. Like it was my favorite thing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's how we got started into it. Um, Yeah. So did you read The Silmarillion before or after you read the other books? After the other books. And I, so like I I grew up in church and we had to read like the Bible and like the Old Testament. So the Silmarillion was like very similar, you know, it's like only instead of like Isaac begot like Abraham, it was like, also, like, that's totally not, anyway, <laughs> but in the, in the Silver Hurlian, um, you know, I can read through the lineage of the elves because I'm like, yeah, it's just like, you know, the lineage of the chosen people. So <laughs> it wasn't that far, di- far different for me. That's super interesting because I think like the Silver Hurlian is pretty much a struggle for most people to get through. So it's, I think you're the first person I've ever heard to actually, you know, have that fondness for it and not just be like, this is an achievement that I made it through. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like honestly, I feel like the Silmarillion has some of Tolkien's best stories. Like, I love the Fall of Gondolin. Um, I just think it's like so cool. Like, imagining like an army of Balrogs scaling a mountain with like you know a battalion of dragons flying behind them. Like, what? Like that is just amazing. Anyway, like I hope I hope that Amazon series doesn't like you know horribly ruin ruin it because there's so much potential there it yeah (laughs) yeah i have i mean i think i would have had high hopes if the hobbit hadn't come out but after those movies my hopes have dwindled Uh, (laughs) but i mean i think you're the first person that we've had on this podcast who like a hundred percent knows way more about this series than any of us do so i'm really excited to hear your takes on all of this yeah, uh, to our listeners, get ready to have your beliefs about us totally crushed as you realize how newbie we are compared to some other people. No, no, but okay, like... Okay, that is working off the assumption that our listeners don't know and have not known from the beginning that we are full of shit. And frankly, I have more faith in our <laughs> listeners than that. They absolutely know we're full of shit. <laughs> The clickbait headline for this episode is going to be exposed. The hosts know nothing about Lord of the Rings. 
Yeah, gas destroys None of these three people have ever read Lord of the Rings. So Clint, so tell us about how what role Lord of the Rings plays in your life now. Yeah, so I I feel like the, it always has this kind of nostalgia for me. Um just because it was so much of my formative years, so much of my formative years were spent reading Lord of the Rings and delving into the universe and like I have this like art book full of like drawings of elves and balrogs and like dragons like i used to just sit in the library and like read that and like sketch and doodle and so it really like it takes me to a place when i really was not comfortable in this world that we're living in and so that was a world that i could go to and feel safe um and i think for a lot of people who are gay or lgbt of some in some way like probably relate to that on on a level um but now that I think I'm more of an adult, when I look back and read um, Lord of the Rings, it's it's really nostalgic. It's kind of like, remember when this was the only place where I could feel safe? And now when I read it, I look and see how much reality is in it, if that makes sense. Because it's like, you go through these scenes and there's all these vivid descriptions of forests and mountains. And I can just picture Tolkien going on a walk or a hike somewhere, writing all this down in his notes. Like, it feels like the same that I would feel when I'm finally at peace, like out in the woods. And so it's interesting how the meaning of the book has kind of transformed for me from this kind of like escapist fantasy to another way that I can interact with the world that I'm actually living in, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really beautiful, actually. I was talking to one of my friends recently about how there's like pieces of art that you feel like you grow with not like pieces of art where like they mean the same thing to you year over year and you're just kind of like I've always loved this in the exact same way and there are those things but then there are also things and I think this is even rarer where you just kind of enjoy it differently for like decades so like way over the course of your life and I think that that's like that's kind of what it has been like for me too like all of the like my reading experience with LOTR this time has been pointing out or noticing things in the books that feel super relatable uh to stuff going on in the world around me maybe up until these chapters that we just read in which none of the scenarios or like none of the scenery actually feels familiar i think like we've talked a lot about on on the show about how this series has kind of been something continuous in our friendship but also i think I relate to this idea of it being a constant in my life because there are maybe only two series, um, this and I would say like Harry Potter, that I continue to interact with in any capacity where whatever is happening, like I will still reread these books, I will still rewatch these movies any number of times. And I think that, you know, even though this experience has been like mostly me like pointing out a lot of flaws that I may not have looked more deeply into with this series it still it still like transcends any other series that I've ever read or interacted with yeah it definitely does and I will say like there is yeah no I mean I was thinking about that and I'm thinking about the fact that there was a certain security for me in the fact that Tolkien is dead because like I don't I I cannot in good conscience enjoy Harry Potter the way I used to because of J.K. Rowling's, like, absolutely horrific behavior towards trans people. 
I can't. Like, I can't in good conscience do anything that would give her more money. And that makes it really hard, like, as somebody who absolutely grew up with Harry Potter and absolutely loved it, like, I sit there and I go, yeah, like, I just cannot feel, I cannot separate creator and property when the creator's actions have been, like, so repeated and so horrible. And so, like, there is a... And, you know, you see this all the time. Like, it's hard for me still to watch movies when I'm like, okay, and now I know that this actor is, like, a a child, like, predator. And it's really hard to take him seriously as, like, a charming romantic lead when I know that at this time he was molesting children. Like, shit like that for me. And I know everybody's mileage may vary on this, but, like, for me, that is really hard to disentangle. And so... There is security for me in being able to take Lord of the Rings as what it is and recognizing that Tolkien is not perfect, but also knowing that Tolkien is not going to, like, go out and do more awful things that I'm going to learn about three weeks from now. That, like, Tolkien only wrote about problematic age gaps. He did not engage in those relationships, to my knowledge. (laughs) <laughs> you, you know this this is kind of reminding me um i like in one of these lord of the rings meme groups and so th- and this is one of the ways that i got through 2020 is i joined all these lord of the rings meme groups and just made horrible absolutely horrible vile lord of the rings memes um to share um on under anonymous accounts um very I, I can't tell if i should be proud or like ashamed of this work but anyway um on one of these threads because you know these facebook groups are like they attract like the worst kind of q like QAnon, like right-wing conspiracy theorists like crazy bot accounts on one of these threads somebody posted like this kind of scoffy comment like oh well tolkien wouldn't make any of his characters gay sort of thing and like just to fuck with this guy and just to like i don't know spread more disinformation because maybe the world needs it no actually no the world does not need it but anyway um i posted this like very long response that was like actually tolkien made like have you read the letters of tolkien did you know that he intended gandalf and radagast to be gay and then i like made this fake excerpt from Tolkien's letters and I spent like days on this like I was pouring through Tolkien's letters to like try to figure out his style of prose and like pick pieces of like of writing and put them in together into like this <laughs> fake excerpt from his letters um and basically made this like love story between Gandalf and Radagast and then posted it and I have to say this is like one of my proudest pieces of work um but what I didn't realize is all of these like gay people started commenting on like how they had no idea and they were so excited like literally so excited that like Tolkien had secretly tried to make characters gay and then decided that he couldn't because the editors would not allow it um so I actually had to go and like comment and tell everybody that this was false because I I didn't I wanted to troll like these like conservative people and ended up like giving all these people hope and I was like no sorry this is fake (laughs) like um but anyway like yeah, it's very true that when you look at like these these authors that are dead, it's kind of like they're in this different world, and a lot of the things that we relate to today just, um, yeah, it's we almost have to create our fan fiction to keep the relevance for ourselves, if that makes sense. When we decided to do this, I actually was a little bit scared that we were going to find something in this text or about Tolkien because uh, because of the deep dive that we're doing. That I was like, oh man, I'm gonna have to you know, cancel this thing that I absolutely love. And I think we have, um, we have found some things that are like less than savory for sure. But I I definitely agree that there is kind of a relief in being like, all right, 
Tolkien is dead. He was a product of his time. We can acknowledge that he was wrong about a lot of things, but he's not going to like do anything tomorrow that would make me have to burn my Tolkien jersey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's talk about this work that we read and not Harry Potter. (laughs) Um, So today we're covering chapters seven and eight of book Four? Are we on book four? Book four of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, yeah, so these chapters basically cover uh, Frodo and Sam's uh, departure from Ithilien, departure from Faramir's company, uh, and they set off with Gollum once more towards Mordor, and they basically walk through um, the land just outside of Mordor, like in between Ithilien and Mordor for I think the entirety of these chapters until they reach Minas Morgul um, and are actually in Mordor proper and not a ton happens plot wise in these chapters but we did get some interesting um, points from we, we got some interesting talking points between Sam and Frodo we got some interesting characterization of Gollum and then we got a lot of interesting description of this actual land that they're walking through. So basically, when they leave Ithilien, uh, Faramir decides to blindfold, blindfold Gollum for unknown reasons, given that he literally found the place without a blindfold. So I don't know what he's protecting. Uh, but <laughs> Gollum, I don't know about, I don't know if you guys felt this, but I felt that Gollum was acting weird. And it's it's totally justified why he was acting weird because he's just been very poorly treated. But the entirety of these two chapters, I was like, this guy is going to betray them for sure. Did you I mean, get that feeling? Isn't that a line that Frodo says to Sam? Like, Sam, do you think that Gollum is acting weird? <laughs> yeah. But could you pinpoint what he was doing that was weird? Because I couldn't exactly put my finger on how his behavior had changed, but it was definitely off. Well, I think um, at least particularly in the, the second chapter on the journey to, or sorry, the um, at, uh, the stairs of Sirith Ungol, um, it's that like normally he goes off in the middle of the night while they're sleeping to get food, but suddenly they're out in a place with no food and he's been disappearing. And so I think that's, it, it's like after Sam points that out to Frodo, like where's Frodo or where's Smeagol going? You know, there's no food for him here. And Frodo's like, yeah, he probably has a plan. You know, he's probably going to betray us. But, you know, it's Gollum. It's probably going to be a simple plan. Like, his head's all muddied. He's just got one, like, little devious plot. We'll figure it out and be fine. (laughs) I think he's also much less fawning and apologetic about things. Like, Frodo reprimands him for saying mean things about Faramir, which, side note... He was totally justified in saying mean things about Faramir. Somebody kidnaps you off the street and then, like, beats you up a little bit and then threatens to kill you. Just the fact that they didn't kill you is not enough to be like, oh, yeah, they're awesome, swell people. Like, no, I'm sorry. He was, yeah. Gollum was right. Uh, One does not but, simply like, correct I think the he's vibe much after less... the Faramir situation. <laughs> <laughs> the vibe is off. Yeah. Yeah. So I really feel like after that point, it's he's much less like there's no sense of him trying to be ingratiating anymore. He's with them, but he's not happy about it. Yeah. And OK, so what's with this whole 
it's called out many times that Gollum is not eating, right? Like, there's a few different times where Tolkien specifically mentions that Frodo and Sam sat down to have food and Gollum doesn't eat anything. What do you make of this? Is he using this time that he goes off by himself to hunt for food? Or is there something else going on where, like, the closer he gets to Mordor, the less he needs to eat or the more, like, the ring is feeding him or something? Did you get any... any were the vibes off for you about that? <laughs> well, uh, so I, I got... My, my interpretation of that is that Tolkien is doing this to help us empathize with Smeagol um, and to show that, like, even though Smeagol is going through a lot and is potentially a villain, he still struggles with the basic things like eating and drinking. Um, and he, he can't really have the food that Frodo and Sam um, have, so he has to work for his own food on top of having to take them on this little tour. So I think what Tolkien's done is really brilliant in this way because you see how there are all these little subtle interactions, which you can totally relate to because you like you know like when you're going camping with somebody and they start to drive you crazy and you say like little snippy comments, um, you kind of see that with like Sam and Gollum and Frodo, but the difference is that like here Smeagol is kind of like at this like he like kind of turning point like there are all these moments where he like this goodness comes out in him and it's about to surface and then somebody says something small or does something mean to him and then it's like the villain comes back or the green glint comes back in his eye and he kind of you, you see that transformation of him into a villain and i think that like that's it shows how even the good characters struggle to be good and even the bad characters are like struggling to be bad you know um, and that really it's their interactions that are what are driving them to their potential fate at the end. It also feels like there's like something going on in Gollum's head, sort of like a coming to terms with what being Frodo's slave means. Because up until this point, it seems like Gollum has kind of been hedging his bets, going, okay, like, I really want the ring back, but at least this guy hasn't killed me, and all things considered, this is as good of a situation that one could hope for if one is captured and taken into servitude. Um, and then the stuff with Faramir happens, and the situation just gets a lot worse. And from Gollum's perspective, it's probably clearer than ever that Master is not someone that has his interests at heart in any way. So this, like, so his behavior kind of reminded me in these chapters of, like, someone that is, like, not necessarily changing fundamentally, but, like, quickly coming to a decision about what to do, you know, about this kind of contradictory position that he's in. Like, so far he could, like, he's just been kind of putting off this decision of, like, all right, am I going to lead the hobbits into Mordor? Or am I going to allow the spider to kill them and then take the ring for myself? <laughs> it's really interesting to me that this chapter is the first time we actually see at the end of the chapter, Sam apologizes to Gollum with apparent sincerity. Like he actually does give a a decent apology for snapping at Gollum. And in thinking about like Gollum being at this decision point and the fact that the good characters are struggling to be good and the bad characters are struggling to like make those quote unquote evil decisions that if only Sam had been kinder 
earlier, right? Like what would have changed? How much might have changed if Sam could have found a little bit of the compassion and empathy he shows finally at the end of this chapter, like two or three chapters ago? Can I... Can I just disagree really hard with that, actually? Because I just want to say the thing that I think that you're talking about when you say Sam's sincere apology is Sam saying, uh, I did use the word sneak, waking up out of my sleep sudden and all. I said I was sorry, but soon I shan't be. That's not a good apology. No, but before that, <laughs> he apologizes before that. Yeah, he That's apologizes directly to, to Gollum before... He oh, says, when he mm-hmm. says, I'm sorry, but you startled me out of my sleep. And I, and that made me a yeah. bit sharp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I kind of want to take something that you guys are saying and play on that a little bit. So what I interpreted this change as is that this is kind of like Gollum coming into his own for the first time where he is actually the one suddenly with a plan, right? Up until now, he has been helping the hobbits but kind of because he's bound to and he swore to and this is the first time that he has actually had any agency of his own where he has formulated a plan that he's taking them on and wanda you mentioned in your notes that when they come to the crossroads it felt significant and you weren't you could you couldn't tell exactly why it was significant but it was and what i interpreted that as is the crossroads of like Gollum basically making his ultimate choice he decides at that moment to take them to Carathungal, to to put into place the plan. And this is the first time that Gollum felt like a fully fleshed out character to me, as opposed to just like a groveling, like very pitiful creature that's following them along. And I thought that actually that was evidenced also in Sam's uh, speech at the end, which I know we're going to talk about, where he says, uh, "Do you, who do you think Gollum thinks he is? Do you think he thinks he's the hero or the villain of this story? And it was the first time that I thought that Sam was actually seeing Gollum as someone who could make his own choices and someone who had a perception of himself. Yeah, if I might reply to that, I think one thing, one word that I sort of um, react to from from what you say, I completely agree, but it's just, it's it's on that notion of choice for Gollum. Um, and I, I feel like um, when, I, when I read this, what stands out to me is less about Gollum's choice and more how it's like he's kind of conditioned into this position. Like he's been called a villain so many times, like Sam just offhandedly calls him a villain. Um, it's almost like he doesn't have a choice. It's, and actually like at the end, I just saw this, um, looking at this again, I thought this was so kind of profound, um, but if I can just like read this section at the very end, um, he's like, so this is like, right when they wake up and they're about to go and they're on their way towards the tunnel where Golem is going to do the dirty and well, oh that sounds bad um, <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna go betray them um, but anyway so um, Frodo drew a deep breath and sat up the last lap he said hello Smeagol found any food have you had any rest no food no rest nothing for Smeagol said Golem he's a sneak Sam clicked his tongue but restrained himself don't take names to yourself Smeagol said Frodo it's unwise whether they are true or false. Smeagol has to take what's given to him, answered Golem. He was given that name by kind master Samwise, the hobbit that knows so much. Um, so in that sense, like, don't take names to yourself. Um, it's unwise, whether they be true or false. I was just, I was thinking about that. Like, that, like the way that we internalize and accept the names that people, like, give to us really affects our fate and affects what we do. 
Um, and I think particularly in Tolkien's universe to name something, there's like a power to it. Like there's kind of a magic in naming something. Um, and so giving Smeagol this label, like, like first his transformation into being more of a neutral character was when he is given his original name. He's reminded what his name was. But then to have that muddied by being called a villain every day by the people that he's trying to help, you know, that like you can see you can see how his kind of fate is sort of set for him. It's almost like he didn't have a choice. He was pushed into that position. Anyway, that that's my thought. <laughs> So I think that's actually a really good um, transition into talking a little bit about this part at the end of the second chapter where Frodo and Sam are discussing basically what a story is and what makes a good story. And they have some conversations about um, basically, you know, are they in a story that's going to become a well-known story? What is it about somebody's story that makes it something that's remembered? And Frodo says something like, um, well, I wish I had the text in front of me so I could quote this. Does anybody have it? Like Sam says, like, I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull, a kind of sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have been landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances like us of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on, and not all to a good end, mind you. At least not to what folk inside a story, and not outside it, call it a good end. You know, coming home and finding things all right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the best tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen Yeah, so... Sam describes this as if he he kind of removes any choices that they're making from the element of this story, which I thought was really interesting, especially as it pertains to Gollum as well, because he's basically acting like they've just somehow ended up here in Mordor and they didn't have any choice in the matter. And they're just like, maybe they'll tell this story afterwards, but sucks for them. And I'm like, that's not true at all, right? Every moment of this journey for them has been a choice to continue on it from the moment that Frodo left the Shire to the moment where he decided that he would be the one to take the ring to even when every like crossroads that they've reached, uh, he could have turned back, right? He Even in Ithilien, he could have just said, oh, there's like food and a bed here. I'm not going to Mordor. But he's made that choice actively and Sam has chosen to follow him each step of the way. So I thought it was really interesting that he described this as as if something was just happening to them. Yeah, and it was really interesting because if you contrast it with how the speech is done in the movies when Sam does it at the scene in Osgiliath that I actually think does not happen in the books ever. Um, Sam and Frodo never do go to Osgiliath with Faramir and experience the raid by the orcs. Um, But if you contrast this speech in the book with how it's done in that scene in the movies, I think that they have been really careful to make some small but meaningful changes in the films, right? Like, they they don't have Sam saying, you know, the stories that really mattered are ones where if you were a character in the story, you wouldn't perceive it necessarily as a story. You just perceive it as getting up and living your life from day to day. And the meaning is created on that larger kind of external level. In the movies, he says, like, it's more of like a persistence moral where he says everybody in the stories that mattered had a chance to turn back, but they did not. So it feels like 
Tolkien is making a very different point here. Like, or Tolkien through Sam is making a different point about, like, how it feels to be a character in a story. Feels like kind of a moral point. What do you guys think? I I definitely think it's a it's a moral point. Um, oh, I, I I like the thing about this particular speech from Sam that I think is kind of like historically poignant is that this movie came out like when the movie and they shot this scene came out. It's like two thousand and two. Uh, it's literally called the Two Towers, and it's like a year after the um the uh nine eleven. Um, and I remember being in the theater with my family and we have all this stuff on the news about 9-11 and now we're going to war in Iraq. And there really was this kind of moralistic moment in this movie about what it means to like move forward and to have hope that was added. Because if like, like one, like you mentioned earlier that in this particular scene in the book, it's really just kind of this aside about what it like, oh, we're in a story. I wonder what kind of story we're in. It's almost like this kind of joke with the reader that there's this irony. Yes, you are characters. Yes, you are in the Lord of the Rings. Whereas in the movie, there's this statement about like, what does it mean to push on? And Sam says that line. It's like, because I have to believe that there's still some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. Um, that line is absent in the book, but it's so poignant in the film, I think both because of the historical time when it was released and just because it's a very powerful statement that like the reason that you do push on is because you do have that bit of hope that you that you fight for. Now, see, I I agree with what you said about like there is a certain poignancy about the way that moment is presented in the movie. But I think I disagree with the idea that Sam is taking away all agency from them because I think there is an agency that he's highlighting. I just think it's not the sort of agency that we are conditioned to think of as agency, right? We're thinking of agency as like, oh, you have to like choose to go forward and choose to like have something worth fighting for, Um, which like maybe is a generational thing. Honestly, I don't know. Um, But in the book, the choice isn't, okay, I'm going to choose to go on this adventure. The choice is, I cannot live with myself if I turn back. So I cannot turn back. And by default, by choosing over and over to not give up, you are moving forward. And I think in some ways, that's a, a harder kind of agency. I think it's less, quote unquote, heroic to say, Maybe you're not sitting there going, we're definitely going to win and we have this thing to fight for and we have hope. But you can't live with yourself if you turn back. So you have to keep moving forward. And that to me feels like like almost fatalistic a little bit. But I think it is important. Like I think that is an important choice that maybe it doesn't feel like there is something you're working towards, but you are choosing still not to give up and not to go home and not to stay stagnant either yeah no I absolutely agree with that I guess like what I was trying to say was less that I don't think that there's agency in this but rather especially when he contrasts it with Gollum Gollum has also come with them every step of the way in fact at the end of this chapter Frodo actually sets him free and he still decides to come with them and It's interesting to me that Sam sees himself and Frodo as, like, basically these heroes on this journey. And yes, they are kind of, like, 
the choice that they're making is just not to turn back. But I feel like he almost he he doesn't value Gollum as as a component of that story, and it becomes apparent like one scene later. Um, so there's there's a scene at the end of this chapter that is kind of a mirror of a scene that happened earlier where Frodo and Sam kind of or, or Sam was kind of like watching Frodo sleep. We get another moment between them where. Uh, Frodo is tired and Sam says, lay your head in my lap. He puts his arms around him and they both kind of fall asleep like that. It's adorable. Uh, it's very cute. Everything is happy. I had feelings about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a moment later, Gollum comes back from wherever he was and he happens upon them uh, in this, you know, sleeping like this. And we get this like really, really sad moment of of Gollum clearly feeling like he has missed something by not having someone that he that is on his side in this way and he even like reaches out for Frodo and thinking that maybe Frodo is this person and like immediately they wake up Frodo screams Sam is like get out of here what are you doing and it's it's I I thought the scene was so incredibly sad um, because it really showed to me that Gollum is even though he's like kind of about to betray them, he still feels something and he feels something for Frodo, even though Frodo has put him in this position of basically like being a slave to him. Yeah. He longs for that intimacy, I think. Yeah. He has FROMO. I'm sorry. (laughs) Gollum's like, I just couldn't find someone that loved me for having read the Silmarillion. Wow, wow. Wow. Ooh, Anal- I gotta cut that. I <laughs> know <laughs> you can leave that in, that's fine. <laughs> okay, well, going back to this actual scene, what are your I feelings actually about? I actually had a I had a question. I guess I wanted to ask I and I don't like sorry, at at risk of I guess sounding weird about this, like I, I did want to ask you, Clint, like We've had a couple discussions on this podcast about the readings of Frodo and Sam's relationship as gay or queer, and I was curious, like, how you feel about, not necessarily, like, whether, I don't, I don't want you to, like, come down like a, like a district attorney being like, it's queer, um, or it's not queer, but how you feel about the temptation to read that relationship as queer. Just any thoughts yeah, on, no. on that? Yeah, it- no. It, it's a good question because it comes up a lot and it comes up uh, not just in Lord of the Rings, but in many types of books and many like also like historical analysis, like you see a relationship. And what I always come back to is I think the question of like, what are they? What do they identify as? I think that's the wrong question. Uh, to me, the right question is like, what does this show me is possible? What do, like what possibilities of intimacy be- between two men are present in this text? Like what? Like, when I look at this, I think, wow, wouldn't that be great to be able to rest my head in the lap of another guy and have him, like, stroke my hair? And it's as simple as that. And, like, you can extrapolate into all the types of relationships that, you know, and all the possibilities that that can inspire for you. But for me, the real question when I look at things like that is not, like, are they gay? The real question is, like, what does this teach me about what it means to be gay, about what it means to go out and live in these moments? Um, and so I think for for me, like, that's where I find the peace in that question, because you could like circle through, do all kinds of like psychoanalysis, try to find some like complex reason for why they are actually gay. But you would never, ever arrive at that like solid, like 
that kind of truth statement. You would always have this ambiguity of what the relationship would be. Um, yeah, so for me, it's about those possibilities um, and the way that you can imagine them in your own life. Do you think that it's like more meaningful for you to have like canon representation in a piece of work or more meaningful for you to be able to interpret it in any possible way? I, well, I think both of those things are meaningful and they're meaningful in different ways. Like in, in some ways, when you have the absence of something in a text, this is what fantasy is for. You get to fill out that absence with whatever you can imagine. And Tolkien is brilliant at that. So many parts of his work, it's like he just gives you this little hint that there might be something there, particularly how he talks about magic. Like, you know, like the, there's like an effect on something, but you don't really know what that is. And I think with those relationships, it's kind of the same way. You can have these relationships that aren't explicitly defined, and you can create your own definitions in the fantasy as you read it. But at the same time, it is really important for people to say, like, hey, this person is like me, to have something that you read and say, you know, this person is just like me in the way that I am, and to have that kind of confidence. Um, and so it takes both. I, I would say if I'm reading a fantasy book like Lord of the Rings, I don't necessarily need to have that like solid like you know um this person is gay like i i don't think you read this and think like okay this person is straight for example um when you're talking about aragon but yes these with an elf but like you can read all kinds of things into like even the um aragorn arwen relationship like all kinds of like queer themes out of that um, like for like you, you could look at um, you, you can look at um, Faramir and the way that he's very effeminate and the way that he's very caring and you can kind of see like a, almost like a trans or a queer character in Faramir the same way that you can with Eowyn and the way that um, she transcends you know kind of femininity femininity um, or expectations of femininity in her role um, so you can kind of look at all these different characters and see bits of your identity and I think that's what's brilliant about it. Usually at the end, we do a quick fire round, which is basically if there's anything that we didn't discuss that you quickly wanted to talk about from this chapter, but didn't really fit into the other discussions, um, now's the time we say it. <laughs> one, one detail that I wanted to just add is that like the, the two chapters start out and they're leaving the um, Ithilien Rangers. And this is what I dressed up as sophomore year of high school when we had like a Renaissance day. Um, I literally, like, I made an Athelian ranger outfit. I have this photo of it. It's, I showed it to Navia. It's ridiculous. Like, I literally cut, I cut, like, bed sheets to make my cape. Um, and I had, like, I had a sword. Amazing. And I showed up to school. Like, I, like, I don't, I don't know what kind of kid I was. Like, what was, what was going on in my head? But anyway, I showed up to school in my ranger outfit. Like, nobody else was really dressing up for Renaissance Day, like, to begin with, much less dressing up as a Lord of the Rings character, much less dressing up as, like, an obscure Lord of the Rings character, like an Athelian Ranger. And I just remember I had, like, like seniors, like, cool, like, you know, the cool kids coming up to me, like, kind of laughing, being like, what are you supposed to be? And I just, like, looked at them through my mask, because I had this little mask that had, like, leaves on it. And I was like, I'm an Athelian Ranger. <laughs> 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 I, I really wish you had gone to school with us because we would have loved you. <laughs> yeah. There were kids wandering around our school dressed in Naruto outfits at times. So, like, you would have fit in. 
Yeah, no, I well, the, I was joking to Navia earlier because I also I ran for um, ASB like our student leadership positions and my one of my posters was I had taken a screenshot of Gladriel when she turns all blue and like like looks crazy and then I put over it in, pr in place of a dark lord you will have a queen and then at the bottom it said vote Clinton oh no oh my god this is sorry this is an anecdote but this is another thing I used to do in high school I would come up with all, all these lord of the rings pickup lines um oh my god and I'm just remembering them like there was one that's like if you think I'm a if you think I'm a hot ball rock now, just wait till I get hands on my whip. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I what, what anyway? It's terrible. I'm going balls to the rock in my dating search. Please cut this. I'm sorry. I'm not going at all. <laughs> no, that one's saying it. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Anyone else want to go next? I was struck in this chapter by. For one thing, the abrupt change in scenery as they get closer to Mordor, where it seems like over the course of 12 hours or so, all of the light goes out of the sky. And the only light that can actually be seen is the flash of Sauron's red gaze from his tower. And I don't know if this will actually be as satisfying to our listeners who aren't reading along as it was to me, but like the third time that the red light is mentioned, it occurred to me like that's the only light that there is in Mordor is the light of Sauron's gaze. So Sauron has literally become the sun and his gaze is the thing by which people in Mordor orient themselves and tell the time. And even though I can't quite lay my hands on an interpretation of that yet, it is capital S significant. It means that Sauron's a Leo. Here comes the sun. Do, 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 do. <laughs> so wait, a new pickup line could be like, damn, are you Sauron? Because you're the only light in this Mordor. Damn, are you, damn, am I Sauron? Because I've got my gaze on you. No, that's not okay. That's not good. You guys, these are bad pickup lines. you gotta phrase that one. You gotta phrase that one <laughs> differently. On that's me. like, Babe, just call me Sauron because I've got my gaze on you is the way to phrase that pickup line. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Am <Yeah>. I Sauron? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll go next because mine is just really short and random. Um, but there's there was this moment in these chapters where they're like climbing the stairs and Frodo is really tired and Gollum keeps being like, no, you can't rest here. It's still really dangerous. And I got so many fitness trainer vibes from this where I was like, <laughs> like Gollum was basically just like, there's only three more exercises in the first set. <laughs> we got the windy stair too. You still haven't done the windy stair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, especially when, especially when Gollum is like, this set is like the hardest. The next one is like longer, but it's easier. Yeah, it's, spoiler alert, it's not. There's a giant <laughs> spider at the top of it. <laughs> the CrossFit in Mordor is to die for. <laughs> um, okay, my quick fire was that I really thought it was interesting how the ring starts becoming much more present in its influence on Frodo this chapter that um, there's this part where he's like watching the Witch King ride out and he's thinking to himself that even if he puts the ring on he's not strong enough to face the Witch King yet which is like buddy what are you expecting to have happen and then at one point he even talks about like 
the fact that the ring is weighing more heavily on him now. And I think it feels like that might be the first time he explicitly acknowledges the toll of carrying it. So this chapter kind of felt like a turning point in that sense, too, not just for Gollum, but also for Frodo as far as how he's responding to the influence of the ring. Yeah, this one's really interesting because you had the interpretation that the ring is kind of getting stronger in its ability to control Frodo. And I had actually almost the opposite reaction where I felt like the significance of this moment where the ring, like he almost puts on the ring and it's like controlling his hand, but then he doesn't. I actually thought that was signifying that he is he is still able to control himself because he doesn't do it. Um, so I think like, I, I think it's kind of interesting that like it could be read both ways. I think that what you guys are both hitting on is that there is an aspect of all power in this world that as it exerts its force on you, gradually forces you to kind of adapt and more of your energy and more of yourself becomes just a... Uh, sort of a, a tool for resisting the influence of this thing, right? Like, and so you can see that Frodo is changing. Before, Frodo didn't have this internal faculty that just enabled him to go, okay, no, like, compartmentalize, don't put the ring on. Before, it wasn't like, that wasn't even his thought process, but now it is. And I think that that, that, is, a, that is a statement that the ring is exerting more force on him, or that he is kind of changing in his relationship to the ring as he uh, spends more time with it or carries it further. I don't know if that's actually useful to say, but it like mirrors some experiences that I've had in life with like just things like the kinds of like struggles that just sustain themselves for a long time. You, you eventually like you change in response to those things. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Navia. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, all of our listeners, and Clint for joining us on this journey. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or review on whatever platform you listen to. No, Sorry, I insist Wanda. on saying this. I um, insist on saying this. Faramir is just Italian-American. He's not queer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can it's go true. now, Sean. Wanda needed to say that first. <laughs>